Kurt and, and Kim uh, for leading us in song this morning. It's great to be with you all here this morning to be together, those in person and those uh, watching on Facebook Live. We will, be, we'll be, we will be starting off in Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 31, if you'd like to turn there. Um, and we are in our, our third week our third Sunday in this series on lament and preparing this message on lament and hearing the other brothers uh, preach on the topic of lament has revealed to me just how little I myself lament and how much the church is in need of, of recovering the biblical practice of lament. Our culture and, and much of the church with it uh, seems to be so inwardly focused that lament has become almost something that is, that is seen as, as taboo, something uh, to almost be avoided. Uh, in a culture where healthy, wealthy, and happy are seen as the trinity to true fulfillment, lament will be seen as something hindering our full potential. Uh, the power of positive thinking, just staying positive, we are told, is the pathway to blessedness. Um, that, dis <clears throat> that despite the reality of this fallen world in our lives and the lives of the whole human race, we just need to think positive, happy thoughts, boost our self-esteem, and everything will be all right. That's not as much blessedness as it is blindedness. The reality is that because of sin, all of creation has been subject to the curse. The curse is the effects of sin in us, around us, and embedded into the very fabric of the created order. The Bible tells us that all have sinned against God, that there is not one that is righteous, and that the whole creation groans under the curse of death. Death was not normal. It was not God's intended design. Death was not the intended end of man. It was because of his rebellion against God that man would return to the dust from which he was created. But Christ came to reverse the curse, to set right the intended order and give life and make all things new. So biblical lament involves more than just the feeling of pain and the shedding of tears. As Pastor Kurt said in, in, in our uh, first sermon in this series, that to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. It involves an understanding of what lies underneath the pain, that, it, that its underlying source is sin. And it also involves an understanding of what lies above the pain or what is the ultimate solution, the ultimate hope beyond the pain. So the Christian laments the whole what's underneath the pain, the reality of the moment, and the fact that one day it's not going to be like this anymore. And we long for that day to come, and it hasn't come yet. So Christian lament interprets pain by grieving both the pain itself, what lies underneath the pain, and the longing for what is yet to come. So my hope this morning is that we might have the cultural blinders taken off a bit more. That by praying prayers of lament, we might begin to see things more the way God sees them. That we might be grieved by sin as God is grieved by sin, 
And I believe the result will be a greater, more intense love for God and a greater, more intense love for one another who are created in His image. So during our time, I want us to consider, first, what it is to be created in the image of God. Second, the lamentable realities of devaluing the image of God. And thirdly, and lastly, the ultimate hope, the ultimate solution, or the ultimate hope. Um, Read with me our main text from Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 31. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every green tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So the very way in which God created man is distinct from the way he created all other creatures. It's the first thing I want to touch on from our our passage here. The very way in in which God created man is distinct from the way he created all other creatures. In verse 20, we see God creating all the sea creatures and the birds, and he simply says what? Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heaven. And it says that he created them according to their kind. And he creates land animals in similar fashion. He says in verse 24, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. But in verse 26, we see something very different. Here, he doesn't simply say, let the waters uh, swarm or let the earth bring forth creatures according to their kind. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Image and likeness are synonymous. Uh, They refer to something being similar but not identical to. It's it's just like a photograph of your child. Uh, It isn't your child, right? But it, it, is, it is a representation or an image of your t- child. It is a likeness of your child. So when God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, let us make man, 
in our likeness, in our image, he was saying, man, both male and female, will be my special representative, the one to reflect to the rest of the creation who I am. In chapter 2 of Genesis, God goes into even more detail to show the distinctiveness of man in relationship to the rest of the creatures. Uh, If you want to turn there, you can turn to uh, chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis. And it says there, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God did not do this with any other creature, with any other animal. With all the other creatures, God simply said, let there be, and there was. With man, he took special care, like a master craftsman with a work of art, and breathed into man his own life-giving spirit. And this points of man's unique distinctness from all other creatures is made even clearer in a few more verses. Starting at verse 18 in chapter 2, before God makes a helper fit for Adam, he brings all the other animals he had created to Adam so Adam can give them their names. He does this first to show that that Adam has uh, dominion over the animals. It's showing that he has dominion over them by naming them. Um, And he he does this uh, secondly to show man that he is specially made in the image of his creator. It says that after all the animals were brought before Adam and he gave each one its name, there was not found among them a helper fit for him. Out of all the other creatures, there was none like man, the one created in the image of God. So next, our text tells us another way of our being made in the image of God is expressed in the exercising of dominion over the rest of creation. Verse 28 of chapter 1 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the living thing that moves on the earth. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Um, sovereign over his creation. And mankind as his special representatives, is given the mandate to reflect these attributes uh, in lesser degrees. No omnis in it, but they are to show his power and his presence throughout all of the creation in, in, in our ruling of the earth. Within the covenant of marriage, men and women are to produce more men and women. <clears throat> and in this way, Fill the earth with the image of God to make his image present throughout all the earth. And in Genesis 2.15, God uh, put Adam in the garden, it says, to work it and to keep it. Uh, This is the way he was to subdue and have dominion over the earth, to cultivate it, cause it to flourish and protect it, keep it, protect it. Unlike the other animals, this, this isn't just mere subsistence, existing, right? It, it's more than the cultivating of crops for food. It's also the cultivation of arts, sciences, literature, a structure of life and culture according to God's standard, resulting in not only a habitat perfectly suited for man's needs and purposes, but an order to life that brings praise and glory to its creator. 
We also reflect the image of God in our ability for interpersonal relationships in, in a way that, that no other animal, no other creature does. And this is a reflection of our being created in the image of God. Um, and just to be clear, there's a lot more ways we, re we reflect the image of God than what I'm going to touch on today. It's just the things I most see out of our, our passage. So uh, to cover them all would be a sermon series in itself. So <clears throat> throughout the scriptures, God has revealed himself to be one in essence and three in persons, simply put. For all of eternity, before time began, there has been a perfect relationship within God himself between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see the Spirit in the very, very first verses of Scripture ho hovering over the waters as the empowering agent of creation. In Christ's high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus says that he shared the glory of the Father before the world existed. And that before the foundation of the world for all eternity, there has existed a relationship of love within the Godhead itself. So God created mankind, male and female, to reflect the image of God found in the interpersonal relationships that have always existed within God himself. I'll say that again. Um, God created ma mankind, male and female, to reflect the image of God found in the interpersonal relationships that have always existed within God himself. The fact that God created two distinct persons instead of just one man reflects to, to some degree the plurality of persons within the Godhead. <clears throat> in verse 26, just before the verse stating that man was created both male and female, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So just as there was fellowship and love and communication and the sharing of glory among the members of the Trinity before the foundation of the world. So God made Adam and Eve in such a way that they would share love and communication and mutual giving of honor to one another in their interpersonal relationships. And nowhere is this more clearly displayed than in the interpersonal unity of marriage. In the covenant of marriage, two persons become one. Genesis 2.24 where we have the wedding of Adam and Eve, God says, therefore a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one. They become one flesh. The two become one. It is within the relationship of marriage that two image bearers of God, male and female, become one physically to procreate, to bring other image bearers of God into the world. Just as there is no separation in unity between the persons of the Godhead of which the union of marriage images, there is to be no separation between the two who have become one in marriage. I'll say that again. There, just as there is no separation in unity between the persons of the Godhead of which the union of marriage images, there is to be no separation between the two who have become one in marriage. And although there are circumstances in Scripture where divorce is allowed, where separation of this union is allowed, adultery and abandonment, most clearly, that does not mean God is okay with divorce on these grounds. They are allowed, but that does not mean God likes it. It doesn't mean He's okay with it. 
in Matthew 19, when Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees on divorce, they ask him why Moses allowed one to divorce his wife on these grounds, on the grounds of adultery. Jesus said it is because of the hardness of man's heart that Moses allowed divorce. From the beginning, it was not so. Divorce in all its forms is an abomination to God. And he has had to regulate it because there are times when it would be the lesser of the evils and would prevent future and even greater spiritual catastrophe. So man is to cleave, to hold fast in faithfulness to his covenant promise to his wife and the wife to her husband. What God has united, what God has made one, let man not separate. And the greatest spiritual dimension to marriage is that it is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. So the image of God also makes human life valuable even after the fall. Humanity is broken at its core because of the presence of sin, but the image of God in mankind is not totally lost. The fall may have marred the image of God, but it does not dissolve the reality of the image. In Genesis 9, uh, verses 5 and 6, a command is given to Noah after God's judgment through the flood. God was establishing some ethical parameters related to life, and, and notice how image here is connected to life. It says, Starting at verse 5, chapter 9. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. And why? For God made man in his own image. Notice that the ethical foundation for capital punishment is the fact that man is made in the image of of God. He is an image bearer of God. Murder is wrong because there is something intrinsically valuable about the life of a human. And that value is unique from the rest of creation. And this is why euthanizing a family pet, though it is hard, having a family pet for 10 to 15 years, it is hard, but it is not the same as euthanizing a human being. And why? The reason being, a dog is not made in the image of God. So, lastly, there is a God-given and inherent value in every person because of the image of God. There is a God-given and inherent value in every person because of the image of God. To be made in the image of God means more than that human beings are creative, that we have a will or, or are more intelligent than the rest of creation. To be made in the image of God means more than that human beings are superior to anything else on earth and that we have simply been given dominion over it. To be made in God's image means that there is something uniquely special about, every, about the very essence and being in a human. Let me say that again. To be made in God's image means that there is something uniquely special about the very essence and being of a human. God made humans valuable. He made them his image bearers. It is part of the essence of humanity. Humans are valuable because the image of God is valuable. And this belief is fundamental to the Christian understanding of life and ethics. Lying is wrong because God has called lying sin. 
Human life is valuable because God made us in his image. Therefore, a Christian worldview believes that every life has a fundamental value because value is tied to the imprint of God by the way of what it means to be an image bearer. But our our culturally dominant uh, view, however, is to root value in function. The, the pull of our culture and our, our, our own works tendency, uh, right? How, our our pr- productiveness, our idea of productiveness um, is toward viewing value through like a value ad lens. And, and that's to say people who don't add perceived value or don't seem to have much function are diminished, discounted, or even destroyed. This is what we saw happen in the Holocaust because they are not perceived as functionally valuable. Because of the image of God, all human life is valuable regardless of level of function. So, now that we've touched on somewhat of what it means to be created in the image of God, what it means to bear the image of God, we move to the lamentable realities of devaluing the image of God. The first lamentable reality is the devaluing of marriage. Marriage has been under attack since its inception. Satan, in approaching Eve first, was attempting to institute a role reversal by tempting Eve to take a leadership role in, obeying God, in disobeying God, attempting to undermine and distort God's very good created order in marriage. This is the exact opposite, however, of how God approached them. When God approached them, he spoke to Adam first. He spoke to Adam first when, when he's given the leadership role in cultivating and providing for and protecting all that God had given him. When God said he put him in the garden to work it and keep it. It was Adam that he gave the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was Adam, he gave the, <clears throat> and it was Adam God approached first when confronting them about their rebellion. And now because sin, the perfect unity of the complementary God-given roles of man and woman in marriage have been distorted and frustrated. In pronouncing the consequential curse upon Eve in Genesis 3.16, God says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now that sin has entered the equation, there would no longer be the perfect harmony of a wife joyfully submitting to the benevolent, loving, God-like leadership of the husband. Now, because of sin, the wife will desire to conquer the husband and have a wrongful desire to usurp and rebel against the authority of the husband. And concerning Adam, the husband, it says, and he shall rule over you. The Hebrew word used here for rule uh, is used in referring to monarchical governments. It implies a dictatorial, uncaring use of authority rather than considerate thoughtful rule so sin has caused the wife to desire the authority that belongs to the husband and it has caused the husband to abuse the authority that he has been given now there's a constant struggle constant strife and disunity within the relationship that was instituted to be a reflection of the very nature of God and the relationship that exists between Christ and his church And now, because of the hardening of our hearts by sin, divorce has entered the picture. 
Before I begin to speak more on this topic of divorce, I just want to be clear that my intention is not to lay any added guilt or judgment upon anyone who has been divorced. Uh, My intention is to see the need for lamenting this consequence of sin. So anyone who has been through a divorce knows that it is always a pain-filled and violent thing. Malachi 2.16 says, The man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garments with violence. It's a scary and destructive storm with and around the family. And it is so because it... And it is so because it is a tearing of what cannot be torn. It's like getting gum out of a rug. It can't be fully done. The ripping apart of the very structure that God had ordained to be a picture of himself and the foundation for human flourishing will never be a clean tear. And this is especially true with children involved. Each and every one of us in this room have been hurt in some way by divorce. There is not a person in here whose life has not been affected directly or indirectly in some way by divorce. Whether your own parents were divorced, whether you married someone who has divorced uh, parents, whether you have kids who have been divorced, everybody has been touched in some way by the consequences of divorce. If that's not a lamentable reality, I don't know what is. The feelings of resentment and abandonment, worthlessness, confusion, disorder, and just the mere complication of life have touched us all. How, How much longer, Lord, will you tolerate the disregard For this earthly metaphor of who you are. God, how many more lives have to be thrown into disarray? How many more times must we must we have to tell our children why they have so many grandparents? How much longer must we endure the destructiveness of divorce? Let us not forget, Father, that in Christ you are making all things new. That in Christ, in Christ alone, is found the forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation to put back together what man has tried to tear apart. Jesus, our exemplar of what marriage is to be, heal our hearts and heal our marriages, that through them your image might shine forth as glorious. The next lamentable reality of devaluing the image of God is that of murder. The first sin recorded in Scripture after the fall is that of murder. It was the the killing of one's own brother when Abel was slain by Cain. As we touched on earlier, all murder is intrinsically wrong, and we should lament all forms of it. But in our day and age, I think we need to especially lament murder in the form of abortion. According to the World Health Organization, every year in the world, there are an estimated 40 to 50 million abortions. 40 to 50 million each year worldwide. 
This corresponds to approximately 125,000 abortions a day. It is estimated that 4,000 happen in the U.S. every day, but we have no real idea of exactly how many are because it's, not, it's not mandatory that they be reported. The fact that so much innocent blood has been shed not only in our land but all around the globe is beyond tragic and devastating and almost incomprehensible. The image of God means not just that life begins at conception, but that every two-celled zygote bears the image of God. Even if it cannot, could not survive outside the womb on its own, even if he or she has no body parts, and even if he or she has no functionality in the world, it is still image. Because image is connected to being and divine imprint, not functionality. It is connected to something beyond us. And the problem doesn't just stop at abortion itself, but its effects as well. For every baby that is aborted, there is a woman or perhaps a man who even today feels the regret and guilt from that decision. If this might be you this morning, I want you to know that Jesus died for every sin that separates us from God, including abortion, and that if you repent from your sin and trust on Christ, you can be assured, be assured of God's love and compassion and forgiveness through him to you. So let us lament the millions of children who were never born. Let us lament the shedding of innocent blood, not only in our land, but in all of the world. Let us lament the moment when a mother decides her body is more value, valuable than the life of a baby. Let us lament the fact that abortion is not only fueled by convenience and expediency, but by money in the selling of aborted body parts. Let us lament the spin language that makes abortion more palatable by calling it pro-choice, and let us lament the pain and regret that some have to battle every day for making that choice. And let us lament a culture for which this issue has become far too common and much too tolerable. The last lamentable reality of devaluing the image of God is that of disabilities. This is very different from divorce and abortion, mainly in the fact that divorce and abortion are wrong and having a disability is not. But disabilities are an effect of the fall on the created order. Remember from earlier that image is not about divinely given value, Oh, that image is about divinely given value, not function. Image is about divinely given value, not function. A person with a disability and a, and a family affected by a disability have a function that is less than ideal. Simply put, that's what disability means, a, a function that is less than ideal. But to have a less than ideal functionality by no degree lessens a person's value. Why? Because their value is not derived from function. Their value rests on the imprint of God upon them. No one should understand this more than the Christian. We should see something different than what the world sees in a person with disabilities. We should see past the disability and past the differences between us. We should see that a person made in the image of God and we should celebrate the imprint of God 
uh, in them that surpasses any functional gap. And if they are a follower of Jesus, we should long for the day when their disabilities will be no more. I was speaking with Pastor Kurt in preparation for this message, and he reflected on the time this church was blessed with the life of our dear brother, Kenny Suggs. He spoke of how beautiful a thing it was to have Kenny standing up here and reading the Word of God to us. How he forced us to slow down, forced us out of our hamster wheel routine, and showed us our need to be inconvenienced. The value that Brother Kenny and every brother and sister like him bring to a body of believers is beyond any earthly estimation. There are no accidents with the sovereign God. That being said, there are still lamentable realities of pain and suffering that accompany these disabilities. So we should lament the brokenness in the created order that causes disabilities. We should lament the frustrating limitations and daily challenges that are part of a disabled person's life and the life of those who care for them. We should lament the rejection that they have felt. Let us lament the needless distance created just because we're different. And let us lament the lack of concern and sensitivity that our brothers and sisters and those who care for them very often feel. So lamentation bemoans how it was and how it is. It cries out against why things are the way they are and against the pain and sorrow of the moment. But lament is Christian. Remember that. Lament is Christian, so it has a hope and a promise beyond the pain and the sorrow and the tears of this fallen world. It has the sure and certain hope found in the promises of Christ. Through Christ, God is and will return the creation back to its original goodness. There is coming a new heavens and a new earth where for those who are in Christ, the dwelling place of God will be with his people once again. No longer will we be as sojourners and exiles, wandering as aliens, but we will be at home with our Father, never to feel separation again. There will be a wedding of Christ to his people, a marriage that will last for eternity, never to be marred by sin, that will perfectly reflect the image of God and glorify the Most Holy One. There we will rejoice with the, the millions upon millions of children who had no choice, who had no voice in this world, whose existence, though short on earth, will go on into blessed eternity. And there, those whose bodies were ravaged and, and disabled by the effects of the fall will have their tongues loosed, their bodies restored, fully reflecting the image of God and praising their Creator without limitation forevermore. We lament because we know there is a day, an eternity awaiting us, where we will never have to again. If you would, please stand. I'm going to conclude this morning by reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 16. Verses 20 through 22. 
hear these comforting, comforting words of our Savior. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you.